0: Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today we feature a favorite Southern preacher, Vance Havner. Talking about his upbringing, Havner says, I grew up with a Bible in one hand and a bird book in the other. I never knew the day when I didn't feel the need to preach and write. I memorized Bible portions, made little Sunday school talks, and sent my first sermon to our small town newspaper when I was nine. Today's sermon is on the seven churches of Revelation. I believe that the first three chapters of Revelation set before us God's pattern for revival. I believe that in the Gospels we have Christ the example, and in the Acts we have the Christ of evangelism, and in the epistles we have the Christ of church and Christian experience. But in the first three chapters of Revelation we have Christ calling upon the church, the Lord of the stands, and the Christ of the candlesticks calling to the church and saying, Repent. And there are a lot of people today who want sermons on the meek and lowly Jesus who went about doing good and on whose breast John laid his head, but they don't want to hear much preaching about the crucified, risen, ascended and coming Lord with his countenance as the sun and his eyes like fire and his voice like the sound of many waters before whom John fell as dead. I think we need more and more to preach about this aspect of our Lord's ministry and message to us. And to five of these seven churches, he said, in substance, repent or else. And the church today does not need buildings or members or money or more activity or even evangelism or missions as much as it needs to repent. A pastor said some time ago that he had decided that the greatest mission field in the world today is the membership of the average church. Now that's a rather terrific thing to say, but there's a great deal of truth in it, even though one might not want to go that far in such a statement. We are increasing the size, but not improving the sort. And the fact that we have a hundred million church members in America may not mean much after all. Dr. Gambrill used to say about the Southern Baptists, he said, we're many but we're not much. (laughs) I think that could be said of all other Baptists and Presbyterians and all the rest of us. The extensive has not been matched by the intensive and while we lengthen our cords we need to strengthen our stakes. I believe that if you had visited the seven churches of proconsular Asia, you would have come back and said, well, Five of them are progressive and prosperous and successful. I don't think they need a revival. But two of them, Smyrna and Philadelphia, are poor and persecuted. Maybe they need a little high-pressure promotion because they don't seem to be doing so well. And yet they were the two that our Lord said did not need a revival, and the other five that were busy and successful and progressive and prosperous were the ones that our Lord commanded to repent. So it will pay us, I think to look at these messages, and tonight to the first one in Revelation 2, unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake has labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitanes, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. This church is the only one of the seven of which we have any history in Scripture, and that's found in Acts 18 and 19 and 20. Paul visited Ephesus the first time, along with Priscilla and Aquila. And then he left, and Apollos, who was a very polished preacher but didn't know all the truth, came along. He was a good preacher as far as he went, but he didn't go far enough. Uh, I'm glad that when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, however, they didn't go stomping out of the place and say that he was a modernist. They invited him home for dinner, I think, You know, you can uh, do a lot with a preacher after he's had a chicken dinner. And so when they had him home for dinner, they said, Now you're all right as far as you go, but you don't go far enough. And they straightened him out, and from then on he gave a complete message. Then Paul returned to Ephesus and preached in the synagogue for three months. He ran into opposition. He always did. He was always having a head-on collision with the world, the flesh, and the devil. He said there's an open door at Ephesus and many adversaries. Opportunity and opposition went together. The same sun that shines on ice and melts it, shines on clay and hardens it. And the gospel either humbles or hardens the human heart. I read that diverse, different ones were hardened. Paul uh, went over into the school of Tyrannus and taught for two years and carried on a threefold ministry. He made tents for a living. He reasoned with them. He was an apologist as well as an apostle. He preached repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ, a double-barrel message. Mind you, what God hath joined together, let no man part asunder. We ought to preach both of them today. And he taught from house to house, warning the people night and day with tears, so he was a pastor as well as an apologist. Then he ran into some more trouble. There were certain Jews who tried to cast out evil spirits using the name of Jesus. It was the same old trick, you know, if you can't lick them, join them. And this evil spirit said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? And the devil would say the same thing today when we try to produce gospel results without gospel power. They took a beating, and we always take a beating when we try to do uh, the work of God without the power of God. But they had a real awakening in, re- in Ephesus, and if you look at the 19th chapter of Acts, uh, verse 17, you'll find that it bears all the marks of a real spiritual awakening. I don't think we'll ever have a real visitation of God that does not bear these marks. Fear fell on them all. We used to sing down south Amazing Grace in a way that I sometimes think we don't sing it now. And I wonder whether one reason may not be that we don't know the meaning of that verse that says, us grace that taught my heart to fear." because there is no fear of God before the eyes of this generation. Then I read next that the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified and of course there never can be a spiritual awakening without the glorifying and the magnifying of the name of Christ. Then it says that many that believe, now these are the church members, came and confessed and showed their deeds. And then another crowd, many of them also which use curious arts, black magic, brought their books together and burned them before all men, and they counted the price of them and found it fifty thousand pieces of silver. They had a bonfire. I doubt whether we shall ever have a real work of God in our churches today until we have some bonfires. Why, it'd take a forty-acre field to hold all the junk that'd go up and smoke today among professing Christians if we had such a conflagration. Then I read that many that believed came and uh, after they confessed uh, their deeds and had this bonfire, I am not surprised that the, the final word is, so mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. Now that's a real awakening. It has all the marks of a visitation of God and so all proconsular Asia was evangelized and all these other churches in Asia got their start through this revival. Then the opposition took another form. Ephesus was devoted to the worship of Diana, and they made uh, silver shrines, and it was a very lucrative business. But when folks got saved, they had no further use for those silver shrines. And Demetrius called the town into an uproar, and we read, there arose no small stir. You see, they stirred up the devil and hurt his business. I'm afraid of any religious movement that does not arouse the bitter opposition of entrenched evil. When the, the demons were cast out of the man, the gathering demoniac, and went into the hogs, the hogs committed suicide, and the hog owners asked Jesus to leave the place because he interfered with business. And when a real visitation of God strikes any community, you may be assured that all who are keeping hogs for the devil will file a protest. And so it would be today. The liquor business for instance. That's not the hog business, but it's the swill business, so it amounts to just about the same thing. But they did not have a revival in Ephesus because Paul preached on what's wrong with Diana. Notice that. He preached Jesus Christ, and when they got saved they didn't have any use for Diana. So he left Ephesus, a growing missionary church, and thirty-odd years later, this message is given and they need a revival. We really have two epistles to the Ephesians. We have the one that we're most familiar with and really this is second Ephesians. A lot had happened between the two. Somebody has said that the church today does not need efficiency so much as it needs efficiency, meaning the spirit of the first letter to the Ephesians. But a lot of churches have the efficiency of this other letter. And our efficiency without his sufficiency is only a deficiency. Now when our Lord speaks to the church at Ephesus, he gives them a very simple outline of his message. I like the outline of our Lord's sermon here. It's a true preacher's outline. It has three points, you know. Most sermons have that, three points and a poem. No poem here, but three points. We have the three points. What's right in the church, what's wrong in the church, and what to do about it. Now, what outline could be better than that? He tells them what's right. He brags on them a little. He says, I know thy works. It was a working church. I know your labor. It was toilsome work. I know your patience. They didn't go befits and starts. They were persistent. You cannot uh, bear evil men. They had discipline. Ephesus was a very wicked city, and they didn't let bad men corrupt it from the outside or the inside. The fact is that when Paul took his leave of the elders of Ephesus, he said in chapter 20, verse 28, Take heed therefore unto yourselves, and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Now that's trouble from the outside. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them." That's trouble from the inside. Trouble from the outside, trouble from the inside. We are to go out as sheep among wolves, but look out for the wolves among the sheep. That's something else. Then he said, you cannot bear those who say they're apostles. You found them to be liars. You deal with false doctrine. And beloved, the church ought to deal with false doctrine. I'm hearing from some directions today, some rather new notes that I, I grow a little concerned about, even sometimes in evangelical circles, a growing tolerance of unbelief, as though it were some grievous inequity for the church of the living God to take a stand against modernism, liberalism, and all forms in between that and the truth of God. Just as you have a right to put a screen in your window to let in the air and to keep out the bugs, the church has a right to screen out the bugs. It has a perfect right, and not only a right, but an obligation. Then they had some more patience here, and they had not fainted. They had not grown weary in well-doing. That's our trouble today. We get tired. <coughs> I heard of a maid down our way who was pretty slow, and her mistress said, My, you're slow. Don't you ever do anything fast? And she said, Yes, I'm going get tired fast. <laughs> We've got a lot of Christians who get tired fast. Well, they didn't do that at Ephesus. <clears throat> now, that's what was right, and that's a lot to be right. And I know a lot of churches that don't have that much right. But look what's wrong. Thou hast left thy first love. So with Ephesus it was lovelessness. We'll have a string of L's just for convenience. Lovelessness. My Lord says that before he comes back, because lawlessness shall abound, the love of the majority shall wax cool. That's what it really says in Matthew twenty-four twelve: Abounding lawlessness and abating love. I don't need to talk to you about the lawlessness. It's everywhere. It not only exists, it abounds. It's not only more extensive, it's more excessive. We're living in a generation that loves everything but righteousness and fears everything but God, juvenile delinquency, broken homes, crime, anarchy, in art, literature, music, international lawlessness, in communism. And it says here the love of the majority. You don't see it in your King James. Weymouth has it. Because of the spread of iniquity, the love of the great majority will grow cold. And if the love of the majority grows cold, that leaves the minority, doesn't it? <clears throat> Other translations put it, And in most of you love will grow cold by the increase of iniquity, and because wickedness is multiplied, most men's love will grow cold. My Lord said that before he comes back there won't be much love, And there won't be much faith. When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth. That's what he said. No use arguing about it. And here at Ephesus, for all their work and toil and orthodoxy and discipline and perseverance, they'd left their first love. My Lord didn't say that because iniquity abounds, the zeal of many will wax cold. Ephesus had zeal. You can give your body to be burned, and your goods to the poor, and have not the love of God in your heart. He didn't say, because lawlessness shall abound, the doctrine of many shall wax modernistic. It will. It has. But that's not what he said here. You can be as straight as a gun barrel theologically, and just as empty as a gun barrel spiritually. The fact of the business is that our Lord commended these people for their stand against false doctrine. Dr. Phillips, in his introduction to the letters to young churches, says that the New Testament writers condemn false doctrine in a manner that seems almost unchristian to us today. That's right. And we're developing a very tender skin along this line. But, beloved, although we ought to condemn false doctrine. Why is it that it is so often the fundamental, orthodox, conservative, so severe in their condemnation of false doctrine who end up with hot heads and cold hearts? It's so easy to do the right thing in a wrong way. and That's what happened here. If you're going to condemn false doctrine, be sure you've got the right combination because the same Paul who said, if we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel, let him be damned. And that's what he said. But that same Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 13. And if you don't balance one with the other, you won't be a thing in this world but a theological hulk show and a doctrinal detective and a religious bloodhound out looking for heretics and sniffing for false doctrine and a little bit disappointed if you don't find something to grumble about. Here you have religious activity without love and there isn't a drier, deader thing on the face of the earth. I sometimes wonder what our church work would look like today if you'd take out of it all that is not the spontaneous expression of our love for Jesus. Why are you a church deacon or an elder or whatever? Did you ever back yourself into a corner and ask, why do I do what I do at church? Why do you sing in the choir? Why do you teach a Sunday school class? Well, somebody has to. I hope you have a better reason than that. Well, I ought to. That's not good enough. I was appointed to do it. Why do you do what you do? Have you had a checkup lately on that? You preacher. Why do I preach? Some folks don't seem to think it takes any more than work in the church. Well, they had plenty of that in Ephesus. I heard of a woman some time ago who said, you mean to tell me that after I've worked in a church for 35 years I won't get to heaven? Now, where did the Bible say that 35 years of church work ever took anybody to heaven? Thank God for these working women in church. I don't know what we do without these meatloaf Marthas and potato salad Priscilla's and all the rest of them. But, if your church work is not born of the love of God, you might as well quit. Dr. G. Campbell Morgan and others have pointed out the difference between Ephesus and Thessalonica. At Ephesus it was just work and labor and patience, but with the Thessalonians it was a work of faith and a labor of love and a patience of hope. And when you take out the love and the faith and the hope, there isn't anything in this world that can be drearier than church work without the love of God. But <clears throat> well, what is that first love? It's your sweetheart love for Jesus. Romans 7.4 says you're married to Jesus. 2 Corinthians 11.2, I've espoused you to one husband. We've come to a time, of course, when the marriage relationship doesn't mean what it used to. And our relationship to Christ doesn't mean what it used to either. People are without natural affection on one hand. They're without divine affection on the other. Some married couples get over it too soon. Some never had that first love. And some think they're growing more mature when they're just growing cold-hearted. Any true husband or wife, as they grow older, discovers that true love does not go, it grows and it glows. If you can sit here tonight and think of your companion through the years and your heart not beat a little faster, shame on you. And if you can think about our Lord and your heart not beat faster, you've left your first love. Where is the blessedness I knew when first I saw the Lord? Where is the soul-refreshing view of Jesus and his word? What peaceful hours I then enjoyed. How sweet their memories still, but they've left an aching void this world can never fill. I prepared these messages some time ago when I was in Chicago in meetings with Dr. Tozer. And, you know, when you start studying a thing like this, it hits the preacher too. And the voice of the Lord said to me, how about you? For your labor and your perseverance and your orthodoxy and your condemnation of sin, what is it that constrains you? If you don't have the love of God, all the eloquence and prophecy and knowledge and faith and benevolence and martyrdom, Sounding brass and clanging cymbal and just so much dust in a windy street. When we love the Lord, we'll love each other. We know we've passed from death into life. We know it because we love the brethren. And by this shall all men know it. We know it and they'll know it. If we love each other. Tertullian said how these Christians love each other. Today you'd have to say how they fight each other. If the man who loves God and hates his brother is a liar, we've raised a bumper crop. When I heard our brother this evening, that splendid message about our Lord's return, and every time I hear something like that, I feel like, well, in an hour like this, when only God knows how soon this may take place, you'd think there not being so many of us anyhow, you'd think we would get along, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you think we'd love each other and get in tune down here a little? My Bible says break up your fallow ground and if you ever start that you'll tear loose some roots of bitterness before long, nine times out of ten. My Bible says love thinketh no evil. I used to think that meant love didn't have evil thoughts. Well it doesn't, but that's not what this means. This means that love does not keep account of evil, does not keep books of evil, does not keep a record of every little mean thing somebody said about you, does not make a mental note of that slighting remark that somebody made, I'll venture some folks in this crowd tonight, you've got a library. No wonder you've got ulcers. Nervous breakdowns, hypertension, hardening of the arteries, you think it's cholesterol or something else, when maybe, and you've been going around lying on couches and some psychiatrist office trying to think of something 40 years ago that might have put a kink in your system. And all these resentments have festered till they've poisoned you. You know what you ought to do? You ought to have a book burning like they had at Ephesus here when the revival started. You ought to burn those books you've been keeping. I preached this in Iowa a year or so ago and the old janitor came up after the service and said, You know, <laughs> said, I'm going to burn my book. I said, What do you mean? Well, he said, I'm the janitor here and I have an awful time trying to keep this crowd comfortable. When it's too hot for Brother Jones, it's too cold for Sister Smith. And they say nasty things about me and I hear it. Then I see them come in and I say, yeah, I know what you said. And then I say, yeah, I know what you said. I've got it down in my book. He said, I'm going to burn my book. I think maybe we could have a revival if we had a big book burning. I think that is keeping back revivals more than modernism and worldliness just between us. We need a fresh outbreak of the love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. I've been a pastor, I've studied everything under the sun about how to keep folks loyal to church. I've begged them and I've scolded them. We've tried everything, but I've learned they go where they want to go, where their hearts are, their heels will follow. But all the church loyalty in the world is not worth a nickel if it doesn't grow out of love. You, married man or woman tonight, you are loyal to your loved one. Why? Because you promised? Well, you did promise, yes, but if your loyalty doesn't grow out of love, it isn't true loyalty. It's for the sake of decency, maybe, and that has its value, of course, but it's not true loyalty. You promised her, you promised him that you'd be loyal, but you're not loyal because you promised, I hope, but because love prompted the promise. And our problem is to get folks so in love with Jesus that they'll work for him because they want to. And you won't have to beg people to sing in the choir and beg people to teach Sunday school and beg people to work with young folks. They'll do it because they love Jesus. Lovest thou me? Feed my sheep. Abide in me and abound. Follow me, be fishers of men. That's the order. I think this love of the Ephesians, their first love, was not a cold and calculating thing. I don't think they had to put on a drive and have a watermelon spread and nobody knows what else to try to get a few people interested in working in a church. Some of you, when you were in love at first... You know what a reckless love that was. Well, I'll venture some of you men bought your sweetheart a gift you couldn't afford, put nearly mortgaged a year's salary on the thing, maybe. And you were so thrilled that you didn't mind it was the reckless expression of a spontaneous love. Some of you have slipped a long way maybe from that. Young Christians, some of you remember when you were a young Christian before you met too many Bible scholars and so too many church members. Brand new. You were like the woman who put all in the treasury, all. You were like Mary of Bethany. You gave more than you could afford. It was high-priced perfume. An old Judas stood over there and he stands there today and grouches and gripes and grumbles because there was none of the love of God in his heart. Now too much of our church work is done by Scrooges who are afraid they'll overdo it. And if they give God a dollar, they want to sing, When We Asunder Part, It Gives Us Inward Pain. <clears throat> You will hear some old farmer say, well, I just can't figure out my tenth. (laughs) If it is coming his way, he'd figure it out. (laughs) I'm glad my mother didn't say I can't afford to sit up all night with this sick child. It might endanger my health. I'm glad I have a Savior who didn't say I can't afford to go to the cross. First love gives everything. It's not stingy. It's not calculating. When you're filled with it, nobody left to beg you to serve Jesus Christ. So our Lord stands among the lampstands and then having told him what's right and what's wrong, he tells what to do. Remember, repent, and repeat. Remember how you loved Jesus when you were a new Christian? Before you degenerated into cold orthodoxy and mechanical church work? Repent change your mind and turn and confess your sin. Go back and ask God to fill your heart with the love of God. And then repeat, do again the first works. Do like you used to do when your orthodoxy was a hot faith of a loving heart. And when church work was a labor of love and not just labor. New you ministering here tonight Recall your first love. Recall your conversion. Recall that first year after you were called to preach. Recall the glow and the glory of your first pastorate. Maybe you've seen so much of the evil in men and you've been disappointed in men you respected. And you've had the Spirit of God quenched in you until you've degenerated, God help us, into a sort of a mild cynicism. And you don't need a new pastorate. You need a new heart. You don't need another postgraduate degree. Too many fellows now have more degrees than they have temperature. You don't need another postgraduate course. You need a refresher course in the three R's. If you don't have it, there's another R in this letter. I will remove you. And so it's revive revival else. May God help us to remember and repent and repeat that there may be revival and not removal. May thy rich grace impart strength to our fainting hearts, our zeal, and may I add, our love inspire. As thou hast died for me, O oh, may my love to thee, pure, warm, and changeless, be a living fire. Pentecost fire, not painted fire. That won't burn. Pentecost fire. And beloved, we would do a horrible thing if we came to this great place and to these occasions so loaded with significance and privilege and possibility and merely accepted any man's message from this pulpit as just so much information and now will be dismissed. You're here from many churches all about over the land and you're a Christian most of you why do you do what you do for Jesus? Do you do it because other folks't won't, won't do it and it has to be done and the work must go on and so you're throwing yourself into the breach and trying to hold a gap out there well that's noble and commendable but I'm afraid it isn't enough to please our Lord and it won't get the work done either. You could do nothing better than to leave this place and get on your knees alone with God and let Jesus talk to you and say, Lord, why do I do what I do and if I'm doing it for any other reason than because I love Thee I'm ashamed of myself and I confess it and I ask Thee to cleanse me with the blood and fill me with the Spirit and make me do what I do. Because I want to, and I want to because I love the Lord Jesus. Shall we pray? Now, Father, we're a bunch of poor, limited, weak, frail mortals in this tabernacle tonight under the all-seeing eye that's watching us. And the Lord of the Lamp stands, and the Christ of the candlesticks is standing here looking us over and thou hast our number and thou knowest what's right and what's wrong and what we ought to do. Help us to be honest enough to face up to it and to do something about it. We pray in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to Vance Havner. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.